This is the Wilderness and Environmental Medicine Live podcast. Welcome to the March 2017 Wilderness and Environmental Live podcast. Live interviews with experts in avalanche rescue with an exciting new guideline in the journal. Then we're going to discuss how running ultra marathons might make you sick. But first, a few announcements from our sponsors. My friend Francois from Chamonix is with us. Francois, you'd better be at Breckenridge this year because registration for the Wilderness Medicine Conference and the 34th annual meeting is now open. Of course, it's going to be in beautiful Breckenridge, Colorado, July 27th to August 1st. So I want to see you there because the conference has been designed to appeal to all austere medicine enthusiasts. And you know, I like to keep it austere. It's also good for novices to veterans of diverse medical backgrounds. And we're going to enjoy a wide variety of lectures, small group sessions, workshops, research sessions, and social activities. It's going to be awesome. Yes, of course, and the research abstracts for the conference are also being accepted. The accepted abstracts will be presented as posters at the meeting with a selection chosen for oral presentations. And we have an exciting update for the year. One oral presentation will be selected for the 2017 WMS Outstanding Research presentation award which is a $500, not Euro, $500 cash award. But the deadline, ladies and gentlemen, mesdames et messieurs, to submit is April 28th. Ah, thanks Francois. And I heard that the journal is planning a special issue on climate change and human health. And so the journal seeking manuscripts describing evidence-based scholarship evaluating human health and human health threats related to a changing environment. So accepted papers will be compiled in a special issue of the journal. The deadline for submissions, everybody, is June 2017. And please see the show notes for this podcast for more information or visit WMS.org. Now, let's hit it. Today, we have Dr. Christopher Van Tilburg, who will be discussing the Wilderness Medical Society practice guidelines for the prevention and management of avalanche and non-avalanche snow burial accidents. Dr. Van Tilburg is an emergency physician who has a clinic in occupational and travel medicine in Hood River, Oregon, who also serves as the medical advisor and participant in the oldest search and rescue unit, the Hood River Crag Rats, and he will be discussing these new guidelines. And interviewing Dr. Van Tilburg is Jason Williams, paramedic, educator, and mountain rescuer par excellence here at the University of New Mexico, who directs our International Mountain Medicine Center programs and founded our Diploma of Mountain Medicine. And it's great to have you gentlemen here. And first, I'd like to go to Dr. Van Tilburg, who will give us a brief synopsis of this paper. Well, this paper started with my interest in airbags and under snow breathing devices in the in the North America it's, that's the Avalung and I I have been doing a lot of writing on both of those devices both in the lay and then and the medical literature and I started looking at the data for those devices wondering why more people aren't using them and why we are so still continue to be focused on avalanche rescue equipment 
to include a beacon and a shovel and a probe and not these extra devices. So when I started looking at the data and in the literature, it basically became apparent that these newer devices, airbags and avalungs, actually are better at decreasing morbidity and mortality than actually the standard avalanche rescue gear that we tell everybody to bring. And so that's how this paper started. And when I got approval to uh, have a practice guideline, I decided to not just invite my colleagues, but really invite the not just the experts, but the best experts in the world that I could assemble to be on this panel, So, which is why our panel has people from five different countries. And so we looked at the literature with regards to avalanche safety, and we also included non-avalanche snow submersion suffocation. And we looked at it from really three different aspects. We looked at it uh, from a prevention, and then rescue, and then resuscitation. So those three components. And basically what we found is that regarding prevention, nothing really compares to possessing good judgment. And that's really should be underscored. And we also found that helmets are useful uh, to prevent trauma. We found that airbags definitely decrease snow burial and also provide a sense of, you know, visual sense on the snow for an avalanche victim. And then also that avalongs work, the under snow breathing devices. And so all of those extra pieces of equipment really should be considered for people going into avalanche train. Uh, regarding rescue, we didn't find the, the literature doesn't support too many uh, novel techniques. Uh, the beacons still are standby for rescue, and shoveling techniques still is important. We did find that cell phones and GPS were not useful for avalanche rescue. And we actually, interestingly, we found that dogs were not actually all that useful for avalanche rescue. They're useful for body recoveries. And we found that calling 911 should be delayed in an avalanche rescue situation because of the need for prompt partner rescue. And then finally, with regards to resuscitation, we um, are basically, when we looked at all the literature regarding the resuscitation, we basically adopted what is being used by the European Resuscitation Council and what they're using in Europe. So to summarize, prevention, rescue, and resuscitation are the essential components. Prevention, rescue, and resuscitation with underscoring good judgment. Those avalanches and airbags, take them with you, please. Most of the time, when we think of calling out the dogs, we think of body recovery. In the backcountry with only two or three people skiing, calling for emergency help on the cell phone is secondary. Immediate location and unburial takes precedence. However, do not leave that cell phone behind. It is an essential on any search and rescue mission. What do you think, Jason? Yeah, I, I completely agree. Um, I think that uh, delaying 911 until you actually pull your, your partner out of the snow and do your initial assessments uh, is, is absolutely adequate. Very well. Jason, what are some points you'd like to bring up in this paper? So Daryl and, and Chris, you know, as you know, avalanche victim resuscitation can be quite challenging. In addition to performing a transceiver search and potentially moving one ton of snow or more during the shoveling phase, personnel will have to initiate resuscitative efforts in a confined space with very harsh environmental conditions. So what are some key information that should be obtained by medical and rescue personnel early on in the resuscitation that can help guide treatment? That's a great question. And the unbearing a victim, obviously, a rescuer is going to you know, try to access the face and the head initially and, and may start resuscitation before the patient's extricated. But some key points are, 
are import, really important to note because it really guides resuscitation and it also guides terminating resuscitation. And that would be trying to determine if the airway is blocked by either physically blocked by snow or blocked by an ice mask, which is you know, frozen water vapor that block, occludes the airway. Uh, rescuers should try to determine if there's trauma, particularly if it's massive trauma that may be incompatible with life. And in our paper, we, we discuss using temperature and a, a lot of that came from the European guidelines where they have rescue physicians on helicopters and they have rescue physicians uh, in ski patrols and they have medics that are readily available. But it's, get, taking a temperature is not going to be probably top priority for a rescuer. So I would say checking for trauma and determining the airway and then finally trying to get a, an idea of the time of burial which is also important, especially if you're a, a third-party rescuer and you're not, the, not in the victim's party. Hmm. What about the air pocket issue? Yeah, so talk to us a little bit more about the significance of an air pocket and what that can mean if uh, a partner or if rescuers see that uh, when they actually start to dig, uh, dig this person out. Uh, an air pocket is a key element in survival. And we used to, when I was a medical student and a resident, and I was doing some rotations with ski patrol. You know, back then, avalanche safety, we used to, you know, think that um, air didn't diffuse through the snowpack very well. And so we now know, based on the snow burial studies that were done, uh, done by two of my co-authors, Colin Grissom and Marty Radwin in Utah, we now know that the snowpack rather diffuses air quite well. And the problem with a burial situation, suffocation occurs when you are diluting your, the air in front of your face with expired air, and so you're causing a carbon dioxide displacement of oxygen. And so if you can diffuse that, or if you can dilute that carbon dioxide in a larger area, meaning an air pocket, you can survive longer. So in other words, the larger the air pocket, the longer survival. This is fascinating. The Avalung, or the Artificial Air Pocket Device, the AAPD, really does work. And you know, when it first came out, I thought, hmm, is this a marketing scheme or what? Well, I was up in Revelstoke, British Columbia, doing some backcountry skiing when the device first came out. A few folks buried me under a meter of snow, and man, I was impressed. It seemed to really work. I stayed under for 30 minutes comfortably, then got tired of doing the math problems in the dark in my head, and I was eventually unburied. Sometime later, I took a group of 10 volunteers and half used the Avalung, half not. All were buried, half a meter, and oxygen saturations and end-tidal carbon dioxide monitoring was done. The Avalung group stayed in for half an hour with good saturations and end-tidal CO2s of 40 to 45. But the group with an air pocket with hands only, they only lasted 3 to 4 minutes, suffocating with end-tidal volumes of 90 millimeters of mercury. So, an Avalung in my mind... It's essential. Let's bring up another question. Chris, could you briefly discuss the ABS airbags that now potentially protect the C-spine as well as provide an additional air pocket? Yeah, the uh, one you're speaking of, which we just mentioned briefly in our paper because there's no data, is um, the Jet Force technology, which is used in the Black Diamond and the Peeps airbags. And I, I've used that airbag. I took one to Japan last year, and then I'm taking the new Peeps airbag to Canada on a trip actually tomorrow. And the idea is that, you know, it's electronic and controlled by a little computer chip. And so they've programmed into it for it to 
inflate initially, and then it continues to get bursts of inflation in case the airbag is torn during the slide or during the avalanche. And then I believe after nine seconds, the bag I have, I believe after nine seconds, the fan then reverses and it deflates. And the airbag is a one-piece kind of horseshoe shape that surrounds the sort of shoulders and the back of the head and neck. And so theoretically, there's going to be a 170-liter air pocket on deflation. Now, that's never been tested. And these devices, are, you know, it's electronic, so there's things that can go wrong. But uh, it's exciting technology that you can possibly have an airbag that then can create an air pocket. And the other corollary device that I've used this summer or this winter touring on Mount Hood is a product made. It's available only in Europe. It's a Farino backpack that has a airbag using the Alpride system, which are which is our cartridges of uh, carbon dioxide and argon. And it also has an integrated uh, under snow breathing device. So it has both an airbag and an Avalon. Well, most of the technology up to now has been airbags inflated with canister air, kind of difficult to take on an airplane. And there are some other problems as well, aren't there? Well, yeah, good. I appreciate that. And the other, really the huge thing that hopefully we, we underscored this enough in the paper, but the, the huge thing is with airbags, operator error accounts for about 60% of deployment failures. So the majority of the deployment failures are operator error and the advantage of the fan bags, which are now JetForce and uh, Arcteryx makes a fan airbag also, the advantage is you can practice with these at no cost except for the cost of the electricity to charge them, whereas canisters are quite expensive. So it's cost prohibitive to practice routinely with a canister bag. But, you know, with the JetForce bag, I've inflated it and repacked it a half a dozen times. Perfect. Well, talk to us a little bit about the avalanche victim with a prolonged burial time, specifically greater than 60 minutes, who may or may not have signs of life. What's the current recommendation? Well, these recommendations uh, largely came from Europe, where they have very advanced mountain medicine first responder uh, system. We use the European Resuscitation Council guidelines, and they kind of had to strike a balance, a balance between resuscitating people who have very low chance of survival and then transporting them versus, you know, not not initiating or withdrawing resuscitation. And so the data regarding resuscitating somebody over 60 minutes burial time is quite low. It's about 11% success rate. And so that's why we came about with the 60-minute cutoff time for initiating resuscitation if somebody's fully buried. But I should say the corollary to that is that doesn't mean you can't find a live recovery one day later or two days later. I think the longest avalanche victim was buried in kind of a building and survived four days until he was unburied. So that's not to say you should use that as a guideline for search rescue and digging somebody out, but it definitely is a guideline for somebody who you recover over 60 minutes and they're not, you know, they're in cardiopulmonary arrest. In avalanche burials, what is meant by an intact or patent airway? For example, a person's been buried for less than 60 minutes. And the first thing we do is assess for airway patency once we've uncovered that person. What are you looking for if there is not an ice concretion down the trachea or an ice mask over the face? And if there were one of these things, should we crack the victim or do a Heimlich maneuver? Wow, that's a great question. I think um, from my experience at resuscitating uh, the few patients I've resuscitated in the field that were not avalanche, is that you have to make kind of a quick decision 
and you're probably going to be making the decision with your head and arms in a hole, you know, trying to access the patient's airway. So I would probably keep it very simple and say, if the mouth and oropharynx is jammed full of snow, that's an occluded airway. And if it looks like it's even partially open with minimal amount of snow, I would say that's a patent airway for the purpose of avalanche resuscitation. So clear the airway possible, say with a simple finger sweep. And if you can't, forget about further resuscitation attempts? Well, yeah, I, I would say if you if you do a finger sweep and it's jammed full of snow, then I would probably, you know, withhold resuscitation if it's over 60 minutes. But uh, I think, you know, a lot of it, as you know, in wilderness medicine, you just kind of have to use your judgment and intuition. The Heimlich maneuver is a great idea. If you can get somebody fully extricated, why not try it and see if you can dislodge snowball from the airway. If you think, uh, if you have the ability, you know, not too many people in mountain rescue are going to, or in avalanche rescue scenarios are going to have the ability to do a cricothyrotomy. But if you have that ability and you think that there's a chance of creating an airway and resuscitating the patient successfully, I would say it's a judgment call, but you know, why not try it? You can always initiate resuscitation and then call it and stop resuscitating a patient. Let's get a bit deeper into the weeds. Looking at the ICAR recommendations, the potassium value went from 12 millimoles or greater, where if it is greater than 12 millimoles, you discontinue the resuscitation. Now, the potassium value has to be 8 millimoles or less to continue the resuscitation, or greater than 8 millimoles per liter, forget about it. If the core temperature is greater than 30 degrees centigrade, or the burial time is greater than 60 minutes, time to call it quit. Simply said, this is like an 8-30-60 rule. But let's say the burial time was... 15 minutes without a patent airway. Does that change anything? Um, that would be an indication to start resuscitation. If they're, if it's 15 minutes, they still probably could be successfully resuscitated. You know, anoxia is going to start with a pack. Somebody's completely buried, buried with an obstructed airway. Hypoxia begins at, you know, three to four minutes. Uh, survival can be out as far as maybe 10 to 15 minutes. So I would probably say if it's 15 minutes and somebody has a completely occluded airway and you're able to dislodge it and you have the skills to resuscitate somebody, I would say that falls under the criteria of initiating resuscitation. The 830 pieces of our algorithm, which came from the literature in Europe, which is what they use in Europe, you know, are not incredibly practical. It's not real. And we mentioned that you know, obtaining a potassium in the field is problematic and probably not going to happen. And checking a core temperature in the field also is problematic. I think if you have to stop resuscitation to check a core temperature, it's it's going to take up time and it may or may not help guide you. Certainly it would help guide you more if it were for a prolonged burial, but not so much with a 15-minute burial. Okay, Jason, get in that hot seat. How would you utilize this new guideline as a rescue leader? Yeah, great question, Daryl. And, and as it's been pointed out a little bit already, you know, the bulk of avalanche burial guidelines have really originated out of the European Mountain Rescue Circuit and the various medical commissions that exist, including the International Commission for Alpine Rescue and their medical commission, and also the, the UIAA. And I think this paper, you know, to my knowledge, is really the first uh, publication of its kind originating from the United States, even though that this paper has a lot of international authors on it, you know, really coming from the Wilderness Medical Society here in the U.S. And so I think for the, the mountain rescue practitioners, whether they be paramedics or physicians or 
uh, or other healthcare professionals out there in the United States, actually having a paper coming from the Wilderness Medical Society here in the U.S. can really be a benefit to practitioners here, uh, here in North America and in the United States. Now, in the paper, there's a figure, figure four specifically, the hierarchy of responsibilities, such as scene safety survey, which is reminiscent of a paper Jason and I wrote a few years ago about rescue priorities, such as ensuring the safety first of yourself, then your partner, your team, and other bystanders before caring for the needs of the patient. Then we go on into the figure, and you do the surface and transceiver search, the probe search, then the strategic shoveling, the medical care, then ultimately the evacuation. This is similar to how we might run a code in an emergency or intensive care medicine situation. You have to have the mindset of a resuscitationist, Chris. Well, that's a astute observation, and I think we, you know, we developed this graphic as well as our some of our other graphics to attempt to give the readers who might apply this in the field a guideline that they wouldn't really have to think about. So you don't necessarily have to process any information. You just have to follow the algorithm and do it step by step. And if you follow this algorithm, you won't have to necessarily remember, uh, won't get distracted by trying to make a decision. You just know, first thing you do, establish a leader. Second thing you do, secure the scene. And you just go through that algorithm. And hopefully that you know, becomes ingrained on readers who may apply this at some point. Excellent. That concludes our summary for this paper. Thanks to Chris and Jason, as well as our audience. But stay tuned. There's more. I step into an avalanche. It covered up my soul. When I am not this hunchback that you see, I sleep beneath the golden hill. So I think these guidelines are helpful. In my view, a transceiver, shovel and probe, as well as an avalanche and ABS airbag are necessary. But you also need to ski with others and should be well-versed in beacon search. In other words, you need to take an avalanche course if you go out into the winter backcountry or even if you ski in a resort. Why a resort? But there's a paper entitled Rescue Missions for Totally Buried Avalanche Victims, 12 Years of Experience in a 2008 edition of High Altitude Medicine and Biology, which showed that of a total of 109 buried victims, half were backcountry and half were off-piste avalanches. And, of course, there are some on-piste avalanches that have also been reported. Here's the scary part, though. 31%, ladies and gentlemen, 31% had avalanche transceivers, yet none of those victims were successfully rescued by companions. None. Now, we don't know if avalanche training experience level of the companions played a part. We don't know their experience level according to this retrospective study. Interestingly, visual location and dogs, yes, dogs, found five survivors in each group and probe searches, 10 survivors. In 60% of the time, rescuers undertook searches in continuously dangerous avalanche terrain, which speaks to the need of situational awareness. And rescuers themselves can and do trigger avalanches. Overall, there was about a 20% survival rate in the paper for buried people. Now, keep in mind that more immediate dog searches are more feasible in ski resorts and not so much in the backcountry, but I would not write off dog searches if available. Additionally, keep in mind that this was a European study, so we don't have information, again, on rates of training that occur in Europe 
versus North America, but it's an interesting paper. Now, the last ICAR UIAA MedCom meeting mentioned a few interesting things. One, helicopter searches where beacon search might be done in the helicopter. What does this mean? Well, the helicopter is doing the beacon search, and then you lower a rescuer rescuers to the scene to better localize the victim. And if another avalanche ensues, what? Adios. Away goes the helicopter to safety. Secondly, the ICAR came up with new guidelines that is in the body of this new WMS guideline described by Dr. Van Tilburg. Now, we discussed patent airway, core temperatures, and potassium values as determinants to continue a resuscitation. But guess what? Point-of-care testing, at least in this part of the world, is kind of difficult. But to summarize, if you have a patient who is asystolic without a patent airway, as we've already discussed, stop. If the airway is patent, you check the temperature or the potassium. Now, the 2015 recommendations have demonstrated that cardiac arrest beyond 30 degrees centigrade or potassium greater than 8 millimoles per liter is futile. But the burial time has gone from 35 to 60 minutes maximum. Now, if these things are uncertain and you think you've got some sort of a patent airway, continue CPR until rescuer fatigue or futility ensues. Ideally, get these folks to an ECMO center, which appears to be more readily available in Europe than the United States with respect to time and distance. In the journal Resuscitation 2015, there is a discussion about intermittent CPR, and this is what is also being recommended by MedCom. What you talking about intermittent CPR, boy? In current hypothermia, the guidelines would recommend that CPR be started as soon as cardiac arrest is diagnosed, and you continue usually until the patient has been rewarmed. Now, that's not totally exact, but there's some interesting case reports that illustrate the idea of intermittent CPR. For instance, there was a 29-year-old skier after an avalanche who had severe hypothermia who had a rescue-related cardiac arrest. And rescuers stopped CPR for 15 minutes during the flight because it's difficult to do CPR during flight. But the patient was rewarmed and made a full recovery. And another case of a 57-year-old who was lost during a snowstorm had a rescue-related cardiac arrest with one-minute CPR, then one-minute evacuation for 25 minutes. So they basically went one-minute CPR, then they stopped for a minute, and then they continued CPR, and the patient got rewarmed with mild neurological disability. And what the authors have written are a proposed idea for a hypothermic cardiac arrest for which CPR could theoretically be delayed by up to 10 minutes to allow rescuers to move the victim to a safer location, which is important. And so if continuous CPR is impossible, why not do intermittent CPR? Now, these guidelines haven't actually been studied in accidental hypothermia, but the authors propose that between 20 to 28 degrees centigrade or unknown, you do at least five minutes of CPR, and then you stop CPR while you evacuate, and then you can continue. And if the casualty has a core temperature less than 20 degrees C, then you can go five minutes of CPR, and then you can go about 10 minutes without CPR, and then resume continuous CPR as soon as is feasible. But, of course, this has to be tested. So there you got it, folks. That's some of the updates in what is going on in avalanche resuscitation. Again, if you have not taken an avalanche safety course, please do so ASAP. Lastly, we're going to discuss a paper that's coming out, the effects of a 36-hour mixed-task ultra-endurance race on mucosal immunity markers and pulmonary function. I have with me a great friend of mine, Joe Alcock. Joe, tell us a little bit about yourself. 
I am a professor of emergency medicine at the University of New Mexico, and I have taught wilderness medicine along with the esteemed Daryl Macias at UNM for many years. You're so kind. And I also teach some evolutionary medicine at the main campus of the university here, which uh, is a way that I can mix it up and keep things interesting. Yeah, and what's your podcast? How do we get a hold of your podcast? Because you do have an evolutionary medicine podcast. I do. Thank you, Daryl. Uh, you can find my own podcast on evolutionary aspects of medicine at evolutionmedicine.com. And that is also available at Evolution Medicine on iTunes and SoundCloud. Excellent. Well, the reason I wanted to have you comment on this paper is that you are really big into immunity and whatnot, and you're basically our emergency medicine immunity specialist. And so I wanted to bring up this paper here, which is kind of interesting because, you know, there's a lot of talk even nowadays among ultra-endurance athletes that when they do ultra-endurance events, they're just depleted. Immune function goes down. There's probably some things that are brought up in this paper that we can talk about, but even from personal experience, I just can't get over URIs as easily as I can. So what these guys did is they wanted to see if there were any changes in mucosal immunity and pulmonary function among these participants in a 36-hour mixed task endurance race. And it's a mixed task because they combined aerobic with anaerobic activity. They not only ran, but they also did some heavy lifting, power exercises, strongman and military style exercises. Now they only had 20 race participants overall and only 13 decided to volunteer and what happened is the participants had pulmonary function tests, hematocrits, and unstimulated saliva samples both before and upon dropout or completion of the event and what these guys looked for was a hematocrit salivary alpha amylase, salivary immunoglobulin A, which I guess you can comment on it, is a putative marker for mucosal immunity, which might correlate with immunity overall. And they found some very interesting things with this. And I'd like you to comment a little bit briefly on this paper and some of your thoughts. Yeah, it's an interesting paper, Daryl. And I, I should caution that I am not an immunologist, but I think that I am equipped to talk about variables of interest in this study. They studied secretory IgA, so the immunoglobulin that we can detect in saliva. And it's been noted in this study and in many previous ones that secretory IgA goes down after a very strenuous athletic event, say like an Ironman or ultramarathon, um, those kinds of things, we see a decrease in secretory IgA. IgA is important for a bunch of reasons. It is one of our first line defenses against infection. It coats harmful bacteria that are in our mouths, and it also participates in ways that I don't totally understand in preventing things like viral illnesses and especially colds. So this is relevant to athletes and ultra-endurance athletes maybe in particular because it's been long noted that people who participate in these things get colds more often, and it seems like one of the mechanisms whereby this happens is a decrease in IgA. So this study is a little bit different from some others in that they wanted to look at an IgA subtype, and that is the IgA subtype 1, and it's thought that that one is more relevant to athletes, and the authors claim that they've never studied this type 1 IgA in ultra-endurance uh, events so far. So that was what makes this, this paper a little bit different. And they had a variety of other hypotheses. One was that they, they suspected that finishers of this event would have a decreased secretary IgA concentration in saliva. They also suspected there'd be a decrease in hematocrit, 
so the number of circulating red blood cells, and also a decrease in lung function. And quite honestly, I don't think the authors laid out the case for exactly why they would expect to see those other two changes, except that we can speculate on why, the, why they might be. They also suspected that non-finishers, the people that dropped out or couldn't finish, would have minimal changes in those variables. So you mentioned that the participants, there was about 20 people who participated in this event total, and it took place in the Midwest of the United States. There were 13 people who decided to sign up for this study. They were mostly male, 12 of them, one female, and they were on average 34 years of age. Uh, they had about 12% body fat. It turns out that of this group, there were seven people that completed and about six uh, who did not. Quitters. <laughs> what the investigators did was they collected some saliva pre and post the event. They collected a little bit of blood with a, a dermal puncture, a finger stick. They measured temperature, and of course they also measured peak flow. They did some pulmonary testing as well. So one thing that the authors talked about was that for the people that completed this event, they spent two nights without sleep. So the, the other part of this was this was a not only an endurance and an athletic stress test, you might, might say, but it's also exposed people to substantial sleep deprivation and sleep stress. So the people that dropped out, they only had one, one day of lost sleep. And of course, they weren't busy exercising quite as long. So that's a big difference between the non-finishers and the finishers. So the race finishers completed all 36 hours. Um, non-finishers dropped out at a mean of 17 hours. So, you know, almost, gosh, what is that? A little over the halfway point, it looks like. Right. But, you know, I mean, does 17 hours really constitute sleep deprivation or sleep stress? I'm not really sure that that's a very strong conclusion that they argue in the paper. I agree. Usually in science, you want to isolate your exposure variables of interest. So if you want to look at, say, sleep deprivation, or if you want to look at some massively difficult athletic task, they could be doing different things to the body or the same thing. This study, of course, mixes them together. And that's just, I think, a limitation of the study. Well, and I know you've looked at some sleep stress literature and are doing something with regard to endotoxemia. And we talk a lot about shift work stress. And I would intuitively think that that would actually decrease your immunity. In fact, it's been shown to decrease immunity. All of the authors here say that other authors have said that sleep deprivation does not affect immunity. You know, there was a landmark paper uh, done about two decades ago where they looked at, of course, this was in rats, but they sleep-deprived rats, and the rats ultimately died of overwhelming sepsis and endotoxemia. So these were gut microbes that leaked out of the gut and ultimately killed the rats. So that idea remains current now. And those were sleep-deprived rats. These were sleep-deprived rats. Right, right. So the idea is that maybe us humans, when we work our overnight shifts, maybe we're also getting some low-level uh, leakage of uh, microbes from the gut into, into our bloodstreams and endotoxemia. So endotoxin is not, was not a variable in this paper, but to the extent that it's important for immunity, and it might explain why some athletes actually have an increased inflammatory response during exercise, that might be one way that that happens. So let's go through a, a few of the outcome measures in this study. One thing they, they looked at was temperature. And the, the authors of this paper did a previous study that did show there was a decrease in, in temperature among endurance athletes. And I couldn't tell from that previous paper if it was the same event or a different event. But in this study, there was no difference in the, the pre-test or pre-event temperature and post-event temperature. There was no, no change in finishers versus non-finishers. With regard to the blood test, the hematocrit, they showed that there was essentially no change again. There was a slight trend towards a decrease in the non-finishers, and again, a slight decrease in the finishers, but there was no difference between the two groups. Right, so it doesn't finishers. sound like hematocrit really dropped between finishers and non-finishers. Yeah, so minimal effect and not different in the two groups. 
Here we get to the interesting stuff. They looked at salivary flow. So how much saliva is pouring out of your mouth? And I don't know about you, but I mean, if I was taking part in a really difficult test or event, I would imagine that the saliva would go down. Uh, and, but, and that looks like that is the case for the people who finished the race. There was a decrease in salivary flow. And I wonder if that's due to dehydration or the effects of a surge of epinephrine or whatnot due to the stress of the race. We don't really know. We don't know. Interestingly, among non-finishers, at least in this study, there was an increase in salivary flow. So this is going to be a hmm. theme for some of the other outcomes here. We see a difference between these two groups. One goes down in the finishers and one goes up. That might be an interesting predictor in those who could finish any given ultra-endurance race. And maybe the people with increased salivary flow weren't as stressed or worried. I don't know. Yeah. Versus the competitors who were serious about finishing. That's what's great about science. It always leads to new hypotheses. Yeah. So as far as the immune part of this paper goes, they looked at secretary IgA overall, and they found a similar trend to uh, salivary flow. And of course, they controlled for flow. They looked at concentration as a function of flow. And they found that among the finishers, the secretary IgA went down, and the non-finishers, it went up. And this was a significant mm. difference, mm. Uh, so a reduction in the, in the finishers that is perhaps meaningful. They found a very similar kind of relationship among when they looked at the subtype, uh, the subtype secretary IgA type, type 1. Again, among the finishers, you see a decrease. Here among the non-finishers, it didn't increase, but they say there was... So basically what it appears what they're saying is that those with the secretory IgA, which is main determinant of mucosal immunity, it decreased in race finishers versus no change whatsoever with regard to those who did not complete the race. So they're saying that those who finish an ultra-endurance event will have decreased secretory IgA type 1. So yeah, so it, it, it appears that it may have decreased among the finishers. Overall, they didn't see a main effect when they looked at, you know, if you combine both groups and you look at combined finishers and non-finishers over time, there was no difference in the secretary IgA type 1. Also, when they, look, when they tried to compare the two groups, it's not clear that there's, there's a difference. So there was no significant interaction effect by group for this, this variable. Now we get into the lung function part, mm. of the, part of the study. Here they looked at peak flow and just like the saliva flow and just like the secretory IgA pattern overall, we find a decrease among finishers and an increase among non-finishers. It doesn't appear to really be that significant, but it is an important thing to note. Yeah, we're not seeing big differences here. You know, if, I, if someone asked me what I would expect, I would, I would imagine that the finishers wouldn't have a, a big decrease in pulmonary function. I wouldn't either. I'd expect the opposite pattern here. I would too. So I simply, I can't really explain this. It's, a, it's an interesting, intriguing finding. You know, they also looked at, um, when they looked at the other variable, they had two. They had peak flow, and they also had forced expiratory volume. Hmm. Uh, that one, that variable did not show any differences. Interesting. I'm not sure how important this particular study is, but it's, they do find a few results that are consistent with some previous work. The main one being that, um, again, among the race finishers, they did see this decrease in IgA and they uh, did see um, some changes in pulmonary function which had been observed previously, so that's interesting. Well, I would have had liked to have known the training regimen and even have gotten these samples even before the participants actually trained because that could have been interesting. And they discussed that the participants trained in greater than 30 minutes of exercise. I'm not exactly sure what that meant. And I would have liked to have seen the fluid and nutrient intake measured as well as something interesting endotoxemia or the function of that, that would have been interesting to measure as well, but they didn't do that. 
Right. So the endotoxemia story is, is a really interesting one. The interest in endotoxemia, I think the, most, mm. the best example of this is the David Neiman study published in 2006, uh, where they looked at ibuprofen use and endotoxemia in the 160 kilometers Western States Endurance Run. And in this study, they showed higher levels of endotoxemia, AKA lipopolysaccharide, in the people that used ibuprofen. So I don't know, do you, don't use, do you, do you use ibuprofen no. when you exercise? No, for two reasons. Number one, because <laughs> I know this study. And number two, right. if you're dehydrated, it's bad for kidney function. Right. So just a, a bad idea, probably. And Correct. people that are taking this thinking it's going to improve their performance or decrease their pain, there's no evidence that's the case. And there's some evidence that it's actually bad for you. So it appears, just taking this whole thing home, that we could conclude that ultra-endurance events definitely can decrease your immune function based on the paper that we're just talking about and based on this Neiman paper as well. That's right. So you know, the conclusions of the authors of the current paper that we're talking about they conclude that there's differences in markers of mucosal immunity, that's the IgA, and pulmonary function, as measured by peak flow, in the finishers as compared to those who can't finish. Again, I don't totally understand why we don't see similar trends in the non-finishers. It seems like they also did a pretty dramatic, you know, 16 hours or 17 hours. Uh, one almost made it to, to 24 hours. Uh, it's, it's surprising to me that they don't show similar changes, but it's, it's interesting. And the main conclusion here is that ultra-endurance athletes should be aware, as the authors write, of these consequences on immune function. And they should take steps to minimize their exposure to sources of upper respiratory tract infections. Good deal, Daryl. Well, thank you very much for your insights on this paper, and we'll catch you next time. You bet. Thanks, Daryl. All right. See ya. And that concludes our Wilderness and Environmental Medicine live podcast from Wilderness and Environmental Medicine, the official journal of the Wilderness Medical Society. Copyright Wilderness Medical Society, published by L. Severe. Don't forget to complete the CME questions at www.wms.org under Members. And drop us a line at wemlive.wms.org. Be safe and talk to you next time.